You're listening to Superstition. Season 2, Episode 3, Chronological Order. Part 2, Dead on My Feet. That was a good story. A little sad. I like stories that are sad. I don't know. I think I prefer mine with a real cliffhanger. <laughs> Jack, I've got a question. What you're doing isn't new. Other people have written their own versions of Superstition's history. Why are you so insistent on it? And why now? Oh, everyone needs a hobby. Now, let's turn to the files Leo Black left behind. Something a little more modern day? Are you sure that's a good idea? Those are the lives of people I know, Jack. They're not history. They're happening now. Well, this one's from <sighs> the 1950s. You're really gonna stand there and tell me you're not curious? Not long ago, you told me you're angry that these secrets are being guarded by people who don't deserve it. I do think that. But I don't think the solution is passing those secrets from people like Duncan, or people like this Leo, to you, or anyone else. Well, that's not what I'm trying to do. I want answers. And you can't tell me you don't have something you want answers to. Because I know there is. You won't tell me what it is, but I know that there's something- How can you tell? I just can, okay? I see it in your face, Izzy. It's kind of familiar. I, I just... Why now? I... Why? I have to figure out what really happened here 15 years ago. I'm so close, and I'm skating around its edges, and I have to find something. My parents left our home in Pennsylvania without telling anybody. Months later, they ended up in superstition without being seen along the way. Mom was nervous, hysterical, admitted to the hospital, and then discharged without answering any questions. She was afraid of something. Afraid she was being followed or watched, and then... Somehow, my dad died. My mother went missing. And the rate of unexplained, unfiled reports and unsolved missing persons cases tripled in the intervening years. That's not a coincidence. Because those don't exist. No. You taught me that. That's where you and I are different, What do you mean? Jack. You think that gives you a reason to keep digging until you hit the bottom... I think it's a reason to look in the other direction. Why? What's the worst that could happen that hasn't already? I have no idea. That's the problem. Because I don't think you'll stop until you've wrung every story out of this town, and that scares the shit out of me. I don't have any other choice. I thought you understood that. I don't think you know anything about not having a choice. What the hell does that mean? None of your business. 
Well, I'm not asking you to be here and judge me. If you want me to go, you better say it. Well, you want to hear the next one, or are you going to storm out? I was dead on my feet. Plum tuckered, as my nana used to say. It was the end of a long shift. The kind where the clock stops mattering. You start to measure the passage of time in the pots of coffee you've put on the burner or how many pieces of pie you've served. Ma's diner was open late, but I'd been there for six years already and I had seniority, so no graveyard shifts for me. No, I, I'd get to leave after the dinner rush and usually with a container of tuna mushroom casserole and some slightly stale cherry pie for my late supper. I liked it all right, the hours and the job, but it was murder on my feet. So I was tired, you see, that night, and I needed a sit down. I always sat for a few minutes before heading home in the booth all the way to the left. I would throw my apron down, slide in, kick off my shoes, and prop my feet up on the opposite booth while I counted my tips and had a cigarette. My boss, Murray, always grumbled at me about that. It's not sanitary, Vi. That's where people eat. They don't eat off of the booth, Mur. I always told him, rolling my eyes. He needed to lighten up. I worked 11 hour days. At the end, I wanted to smoke my cigs and put my damn feet up. So that night, like I said, I was dead on my feet. I needed a sit. I needed a cigarette. So I make my way to my booth. The place is empty. The last trucker at the counter just getting up to go. Murray is moping in the kitchen because I won't have a drink with him. Candace, his sister, who works the counter, is in the toilet fixing her face. The joint is real quiet. I rub my eye with my fist, untying my apron with the other, and I sling it into my booth. It hits something. I open my eyes, and there's a goddamn person in my booth. My booth. An empty diner. Empty chairs, as far as the eye can see, and they're in my booth. I'm mad. I'm tired. I'm not thinking straight, and I'm desperate for that cigarette. I see a uniform, another apron, and I think it must be Peggy, the new girl. Should have left an hour ago, but guess she stuck around and she doesn't know about my booth. So, I think I'll make it all real clear to her. I squeeze into the booth and light up, bumping up against Peggy with my hip, cozying in real close-like so as to make her uncomfortable. I light up. I take a drag. My shoes are already off and I am leaning back, kicking my feet up on the opposite bench. I turn my head to see if I've made my point and I'm, I'm looking into my own face. I can't move. The cigarette smoke is curling up between us. The me that I'm looking at, she doesn't look right. 
she's wearing my apron and my faded uniform, but her eyes are open, curved down, looking at the table. They look wrong, all bulging out. And I see my face is puffy and my tongue is hanging out of my mouth and I didn't see it before, but my whole body is slumped, you see. Slumped over in the booth unnatural like and I can't stop looking. It's me, but I'm dead. There are veins bulging out of my neck like I was choking, like I gagged real hard and then... Yes, as I feel a sharp burning pain, my cigarette, it's burned down bit in the knuckles of my left hand. I'm moving then. Now I'm out of the booth. I'm running. I'm in the kitchen. And my breath's real funny. Like I can't catch it. Like I'm choking. And Candace and Murray are coming over to me and I can barely speak. Who is it? I gasp. Who is in my booth? I look back. There ain't anyone there. I'm gone. A week passes. I'm having trouble sleeping. Every time I close my eyes, I see my face. Wednesday, I oversleep, and I'm running late for work. Murray is always on my case about being late, even though Candace reminds him I live downtown, so I stop at the payphone off of Front Street. Someone's in there already, so I light up and lean against the glass and wait. And wait... It's taking too long, so I finally bang on the glass. The person inside slumps, like they were knocked over by the force of my pounding. I am dead certain something's wrong. I tear the door open. My breath sticks in my throat. It's me again, my body. I'm wearing my going out coat and my brown hat with the little red flower, and my eyes are bulging, and my tongue is hanging out, and my neck looks twisted, almost squeezed out of place. I don't have the air to scream. I slam the door shut and run back to my car. As I start up the engine, I look back, and I can see that the phone booth is empty. The phone is hanging off the hook. I can see it swinging back and forth back and forth. I'm three hours late to work. Murray's hungover, but Candace stops him before he lays into me. The other girls don't mind that I'm late. I'm glad to be busy, distracted. I don't sleep that night. A week later, and... Candace invites the whole day crew over for a few drinks. Candace is sweet on the weekend fry cook, Jimmy, and this last-minute get-together after work is a dead giveaway. It's a hot night, the height of the summer, and I'm glad for the booze and the noisy chatter of everyone around me. We're out on the front porch of the house that Candace and Murray share. Jimmy, Sue, the new girl Peggy, Alice, Jerome, even Murray's come outside, even though he's complaining about the smoke and the noise. We're all smoking and drinking, and I can hear the music from the record player in the background. I'm exhausted. I've barely slept in two weeks. The music is 
slow smoke is thick in the air and I get this feeling and all of a sudden I know it's happening again. I can't stop myself from looking, from tilting my head down and there I am. This time I'm wearing exactly what I have on. A sundress covered with blue polka dots. My eyes are bright and huge, my mouth hanging open. My lips are purple. My body is lying there on the porch, right in the middle of everybody. And nobody sees a thing. My hand shakes as I raise my cigarette up to my lips again and take a long, hard drag. I blow out the smoke and it swirls around my dead body. I blink and it disappears. After that night, I start to get used to it. My body slumped over in my car, the eyes bulging and my tongue hanging out. My body propped up against the dumpster in the alley next to the diner, in a chair at the hair salon, behind the counter at the deli, on a bench in the park, in my shower, in my bed. After a while, I stop really minding. It gets so it's just a normal part of my life. It gets so the only way I know I am still alive is because I can see myself dead. I don't really think about why it's happening. It doesn't matter. My body becomes like a friend to me, someone I can count on, rely on, someone who is always there. One day, it stops. I feel it when I wake up that morning. I know something is different. The feeling in my throat is gone. I don't think I like it. I'm used to that feeling. I I miss that feeling. In its place is something kind of empty. But what could I do? I had to go to work. I go into work. It's a long day. And Murray doesn't show, so we're short-staffed. I start to mark the hours and pots of coffee brewed and pieces of pie served. I lose track of time. My mind's not really on the work. I'm thinking about myself, about my body, and wondering what's changed. Where I've gone. There wasn't much else before I showed up. After, at least I knew I'd have something. Someone. Someone who would always be there. Dead on my feet as I cash out my last table. I'm swaying in my loafers. I'm so tired. And I sling my apron into my booth. I'm just about to sit when Candace comes in. Her eyes are dry and her fists are clenched. She just had a call, she says. From the police, she says. An accident, she says. Murray's heart wasn't right for a long time, she says. 
With the drinking and his meds, something went wrong, she says. A neighbor found him slumped over the wheel of his car, she says. He's in a better place, she says. The diner will reopen, she says, as soon as she can settle her brother's affairs. She'll take care of everything, she says. She looks me right in the eyes when she says that. Like she's trying to tell me something secret that I don't understand. I say something. Condolences. I gather up my things and my aching body and I take myself home. It's strange, I think, as I walk away. So strange that my body would disappear. That I'd stop seeing me, dead and strangled and gone from this world, the day that Murray died. Thank you for listening to Superstition. Dead on My Feet features Kira Apple as Jack, Jory Taylor as Izzy, and Kim Selinski as the voice of the waitress. The short story in this episode was written by Kira Apple and Dallas Moonbow, and it was edited by Sarah Kolb. If you want to talk to someone about seeing your own dead body in unexpected places around town, or you just want to tell us what you think about our show, we're on Twitter at Pod Superstition, or you can rate and review us on iTunes and let us know what you think. We return with part three of this three-part episode next week. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>